Episode number seven with fashion icon Andre Leon Talley. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with titan of American fashion, Andre Leon Talley. Raised in Durham, North Carolina by his grandmother, Andre's love for fashion began at an early age with his discovery of magazines like Vogue and Harper's Bazaar, giving him access to worlds and visions beyond the segregated Jim Crow South. A star student, Andre received a full scholarship to Brown University to study French literature after completing his undergraduate degree at a local HBCU, North Carolina Central University. Although he came from humble beginnings, Andre's meteoric rise through the editorial mastheads of fashion's most prominent publications speak not only to his fine-tuned intellect, but also a keen social intelligence, navigating the dominantly white front rows of the fashion industry for decades. Beginning with an internship at the Metropolitan Museum of Art with legendary fashion editor and lifelong mentor Diana Freeland, he went on to work at Andy Warhol's factory and Interview Magazine. Later stints at Women's Wear Daily, W Magazine, and the New York Times prepared him for his influential role atop the masthead as creative director of American Vogue in 1988, which made him the highest-ranking black person in fashion journalism. He published his first memoir, ALT, in 2003, and his current book, The Chiffon Trenches, which offers a candid window into his professional and personal struggles, was released May of 2020. He currently sits on the board of trustees at the Savannah College of Art and Design, and his documentary, The Gospel According to Andre, was directed by Kim Novak and released in the U.S. in 2018. In this episode, we discuss how Andre's crippling childhood experiences resulted in him never knowing a reciprocal type of love, how he interprets beauty not only in his personal life, but its role and purpose in our surrounding world, the role that faith and spirituality play in his life, and how it connects back to his aesthetics and love for fashion. Speaking of fashion, we also discuss how the industry can advance and not only be more inclusive, but be at the vanguard of this moment that we're currently in. We even speak of his early days working with art world icon Andy Warhol. Please enjoy part two of this wide-ranging conversation with my friend and mentor, Andre Leon Talley. Um, you, you speak in your book, which was amazing, by the way, and thank you for sending me a copy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm famil- familiar with your work, but not with that level of depth and, and breadth, and, and so thank you for that. But you mentioned about... You mentioned uh, an affair or a, a slightly romantic friendship with, I believe, an Italian artist. And yes, you Ricardo Ajosa. Ricardo Ajosa. And you also spoke about um, just how how crippling your childhood experience was. Have you ever no. had a reciprocal no. love no. relationship? No. no, no, tragically, regrettably, no, uh, no. And it's unfortunate, but I, I, I never channeled how to be intimate. 
And this, this beautiful young man, he was beautiful. My God, he was so beautiful. He still is. And he's a, a paper artist. He does beautiful paper. I don't know. It's, he's an artist, and he teaches at the Roman Academy. And how we met, we, he, we met at a television studio where he was interning when I went to Rome to accompany Naomi when she was on a variety show one Saturday night. And Ricardo was standing in the hallway. And we met, and then we talked, and then he, we met at a disco, at a local disco, and then um, he would ride around with, on his bicycle, and we'd go around Rome to the ruins and things. And then I lost track, and then Valentino had this great, great show to celebrate his 44 years in fashion, and it was a three-day extravaganza in Rome. And he'd read in the newspaper that Andre Leontali was in the Hotel de la Russie as a guest of Valentino. And one day, it was hot, that three-day, oh, it was so hot. It was hot, humid July. It was just so damn hot. The moment you took a bath, you put on your fabulous outfits and your couture caftans for Valentina, and you were sweating. Oh, it was just hot, wet. And then he left a note at the hotel. The day before I left to come back to New York, he left a note. And his address and email, and I couldn't believe it. We became friends, and he came to my house. He had a show in Southampton. He came. And uh, he came, he slept in my bedroom. And he's the only person that's ever slept in my bedroom. I've been in this house for 14 years. And we were just friends. And, and I'm sure he had some shallow trauma experience as well. But we have continued our friendship, relationship through emails and letters. He sends me beautiful examples of his work. And he's, um, it's very Viscontian, very Viscontian, but in a positive way. Very Lucino Viscontian, death in Venice. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I can experience sort of romance based on my experiences of something I've experienced, um, like looking at Visconti, Death in Venice. I say that because he's so beautiful. I wish I could have a picture to show you. I have a picture downstairs. But when I, I showed a picture of him when, he, when we, this was about 2007 when Valentino had this great party. And I showed his picture to a friend of mine, and I said, look at this picture. This person said, who is this? And I told them the story. They couldn't believe it. He is so beautiful. He's like one of those Italian stars, like oh, Alain Delon, you know, young. Mm -hmm. But he's an artist. He's a great artist, and he lives alone. He's never been married. He has a beautiful house, and he has beautiful vacation houses. He has a bulldog, and he loves to cook. And I've never been there. I've never been to his house. But I have a friend who was going to Rome, and I said, contact Ricardo and meet with him. And she met with him, and they got on very well. Amazing. Uh, it, could you talk to me a bit about beauty and how you understand beauty in not only your own life, like the desire for beauty, but beauty's role or purpose in our mm -hmm. world? Well, beauty, luxury and beauty are the same thing to me. Luxury is not necessarily that you arrive with your Vuitton luggage with beautiful couture clothes, although that can be beautiful if they are the right clothes and you are the right person with the suitcase. But I learned early on, because I made my own universe, that beauty is everywhere around you. And this is how I can appreciate, I can appreciate so much the importance of a tree or to be sit in a, and gaze at trees, particularly in this moment of sheltering, you know, sitting down, you can't go out. I appreciate my trees more and more. I appreciate the, appreciate the beauty of a red bird, you know, soaring through the trees. And I, my house here is surrounded by cardinals. And they peck at the window. They hit the, the window panes as they're going through the pine trees. 
And that's beauty for me. And then I learned it early on because I had to create my own imagination as a childhood. I had to create my own inner world. And I remember so well that I also had red birds swarming around our house on Cornell Street, my grandmother's house. And I remember so well that I loved my grandmother in the summer would have these beautiful geraniums, rows, pots and pots of geraniums in terracotta pots, beautiful red geraniums on the porch, on the porch of Madison. So somehow, it just, I became uh, an aficionado of beauty. So when I got into the world of fashion, beauty is everywhere. Beauty is in, you can have a beautiful flower, a rose, put it in a glass, a drinking glass, of, and fill it with water, and that's beautiful. You can have a linen tablecloth, and just a linen tablecloth, and a, a, a butter knife, and a pat, a little thing of butter, a little dish of butter, and bread, and that's a beautiful moment. And it is also a beautiful moment in a Chardin painting from the 17th century. So my responses have been that I have been trained through my body of knowledge of literature and art, art appreciation. I took art appreciation courses, and I used to go to the art courses at Duke. I never went to Duke University, but I used to go to the library on the East Campus and just, you know, just, and I would go to the courses and there would be courses on art appreciation. I went to RISD on you know, art appreciation, art history. But Ricardo to me is a beautiful person because he has beautiful hands and beautiful eyes and he looks like a Bronzino portrait from the Renaissance. But yet he's a person that's contemporary. And like you have beautiful fingers in that picture in the New York Times. <laughs> Albrecht Durer uh, had fingers, you know. Yeah. Albrecht Durer, Durer painted a rabbit. And I remember Mr. Bill Blass had the portrait of this here, the Durer portrait in his dressing room on the table of a rabbit. It was a rare. And I was up there one day doing a story for Mr. Bill Blass on his wardrobe or something, something. And I said, oh my God. That is a jewel. It's a rabbit. It's one of the greatest things. He says, you know, Louise Melhondo thought this was a postcard. I said, I hope you told her <laughs> this is not a postcard. This is <laughs> but uh, beauty. My grandmother just created beauty. Uh, the smells beautiful. The most beautiful thing can be an impeccable white sheet that has been pressed and put on the bed. You can have a bedroom. You know. James Baldwin lived in a beautiful house in St. Paul de Vence and his bedroom has been photographed. He had a beautiful bed in his bedroom and a fireplace. Nothing else much in a chair. Beauty is, you can appreciate beauty from so many facets. It's beautiful to just find and discover a moment of beauty in a book. If you're reading a book, you can discover the beauty of a book. Um, beauty is everywhere. Beauty is in the, the gestures of a woman putting on her lipstick. It's the gestures of a hand, the way the girls walk at Saint in the Morgan Best Show. The attitude was extraordinary. It was the music of Morgan Best. The clothes had been inspired by the South. He had never been to the South and seen a catfish row. He'd never seen the movie Morgan Best. He listened to the music. And this man's imagination, Yves Saint Laurent, created the most amazing show in 1978, and Mr. Fairchild called it the Broadway collection, a Broadway suit. But it was a Porgy and Bess. It had been inspired by Porgy and Bess. It was better to call it the Broadway collection. He didn't want to call it Porgy and Bess because people probably didn't understand. But he told me it was Porgy and Bess. He listened to the music in his Volkswagen. 
and that's what inspired him. Uh, you know, designers who um, gravitate towards black models, sensing them a beauty and an attitude about wearing clothes that perhaps other models don't have. The white models may have something to give, but the black models have a uniqueness about attitude. And this is why Mr. Saint Laurent had Munya as a muse. He also had Kierhart Young, an Indian model who was exquisite, and she still is today. I mean, the way Kirat would just hold those long hands as she walked down the runway, and just the way she turned. And Mrs. Givenchy, all these great, great models. Pat Cleveland at the Saint Laurent Couture Show. Naomi Campbell in the Saint Laurent Couture Show. Pat Cleveland, Iman in the Saint Laurent Couture Show. These are the people, and when Mr. Saint Laurent dressed a black mannequin, there was a religious, communication between model and couturier. And I witnessed that. There was a silent spirituality, a respect. I saw it so many times with Munya and the way Pat Cleveland would hold the skirts. And there's this kind of unspoken spirituality in the black mannequin. And it's just unique. And somehow that became a part of me in my expression and articulation of my appreciation of the world of fashion. Mm. How do you see, how, what role does faith and spirituality play in your life and how does it connect back to your love of aesthetics and fashion? I grew up in a church. I still go to church and it was one of my most, I, I don't know where I'd be without the church and without the scripture, not the Bible, without the pastor. As you know, I dedicated a book to Reverend Butts and to my great friend, Lee Radziwill. This is what she left me when she died. She went through her house before she died, and this, she left me this picture. Mm. She left me something else, but this is the picture. She said to her best friend, Hamilton South, send this to Andre when I'm gone. Mm. Look at that perfect moment of me in a white crocodile product coat and Lee in a white Dior couture suit. It's beautiful. And... What did you ask me? I just, what did you ask me just now? Oh, um, I oh, faith, asked, faith, 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 and, and as it also relates to your a sense of um, aesthetics and and fashion. Uh, it, it just it's something that, as my grandmother survived on faith, we lived in the same house for fifty years. When she died, I moved out and bought a house in a very uh, private, almost well, it was mostly white suburb of Durham. She got to live in for six months. She moved in in 1988. She died of leukemia. I, she set before me a role model of strength because she never, ever, ever went poor. She never, we had food. She, we had the clothing. We had values. We had, she never read a book except the Bible and her missionary helper and the newspapers. She was the first child born and she did not finish grade school because other children came along. She was born in 1898 and she had to quit school and help raise those children. And But she was just so solid. And my first book is about my grandmother, Mrs. Freeland. Do you have the first book? I do not. Uh, ALT. Uh, I yeah. do not have that one. But it's an homage to Mrs. Freeland and my grandmother. And so my grandmother, growing up in a church, I joined the church as a young child. The experience of being baptized, the experience of worshiping, 
the beauty of song, of scripture, this word, and just seeing how we as black people, our movement depended a lot on the church, the civil rights movement, Dr. Martin Luther King, Alabama, church. It just, it's just a part of who I am. And I won't let that go. Sometimes I go very far from the church. I was absent from Abyssinia for a long time. But for the last two years, I've been going regularly. Before the pandemic, I would go every Sunday. And um, people just, it, the church is pivotal to my survival, the church and the grace that God, I think, has bestowed upon me. But I thank God for the sky and the, the reasonable health. And, you know, I've got weight issues, but I'm still here. I've got doctors, but I've got this beautiful house. You'll see it when you come up here. It's just beautiful. I've got my own sanctuary. So the arc of safety is to church faith. And, you know, the spoken word, the power of the Black African church has sustained me. And my own inner fortitude to overcome all obstacles as I overcame all woes and obstacles of that horrible serial sexual abuse. And I became. I did not become a wayward, addictive person. I, food became an addiction, of course, but I did not, I, I succeeded, but I, I've never been to jail and I've never uh, sold drugs or taken drugs. You know, you, I could have been, I could have gone down another path, you know, and a black man that you have to be careful. I was lucky to be brought up in a household of faith. And my grandmother set before me that, that, that example. And it, it, it got me far, it got me very far. I'm still I'm still leaning on it today. Yeah, I mean you're you're a thread that weaves through so much of not only American culture but culture in general. Andy Warhol, mm -hmm. Diana yeah. Freeland, John Galliano, yeah, uh, Anna Wintour, yeah, yeah. um, and and the, and the list goes. I mean Lee Razawell, like the list goes yeah. on and on. Yes, 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 yes. And a lot of it, you you from behind the scenes. Um, shaped and carved and, you know, coming from Durham, North Carolina to literally the aristocracy of Europe. Like, what is that? What is that juice? <laughs> what well, that, is that tenacity? The essence of that is the uniqueness and the originality and the uniqueness. All of my friends, Deanna, Rita, Lee, Radziwill, all of them saw, and Andy saw also, that, that I was a special person, that I was a special, I had a speciality and a oneness that could not be replicated. Uh, if you could see pictures of me skinny, oh my God, I just look at the pictures, I think, oh my God, was that as skinny? And I still have some of the clothes. Um, everybody, Ann Bass, she died on April 1, a very great friend of mine. She was dying on her last weeks of her life. She had her friend, Julian Lethbridge, the artist, called me. He tried to reach me. He said, I've been trying to reach you. How do I reach you? I'll give you my phone. And you emailed me. We've got to find him on the phone. He said, Julian, Julian said to me, Anne has asked me to call you. She doesn't have long to be with us. She just, you were at the top of her list. She had very few people she wanted to call, but she wanted to let you know that she's not here for long and she's been sick for a long time. And I, I was so touched by that. And, um, I said to him, I said, well, please give Anne my greatest love. And he said, I will tell her and I know she will be moved. And I just realized that she was a great friend. Anne Bass, this, the wife of a billionaire, she was a great friend. We bonded over clothes, but we became friends. We bonded at the Fish Couture shows. Sal Schlumber and Jay and I were friends before we went to, I went to Paris because she loved Andy Warhol and she used to come to New York 
and go to the Met Ball, and he's fabulous when I have great dresses. And I used to see her with Andy and Bob, and she, you know, she's this very non-judgmental woman. She loved going to a gay bar called the Gilded Grape on Times Square after dinner or some grand dinner, and they would take her down to the Gilded Grape where the boys would be dancing on the bar in their jock straps and stuff. <laughs> so Lee Radson, Will, and I uh, go way back, and it's the Bouvier, and I always say that's the Bouvier connection. That's American royalty, the Bouvier's Jackie, First Lady, Jackie Aristotle Onassis, um, Annette de la Renta. People see in me something in my childhood. I had teachers when I was in the eighth grade my Spanish teacher, her name was Mrs. Lucas, she's now deceased. But before she died, she, I saw her after I had become up in the world. She said, I always knew you were going to go far. I knew it. I saw it in you in the eighth grade. I knew it. I said, why didn't you tell me? She says, you don't tell someone that. You just know it. Mm. Mm. And maybe, you know, I don't know. I know that... Um, my mind works in a special way. So did Deanna Freeland's mind work in a special way. <clears throat> Deanna Freeland didn't go to college, but she, her, she, her mind worked. She was 28 years in fashion at the Bazaar. She worked with Richard Avedon. The way she spoke, it, Mrs. Freeland, there was narration. When she gave you a, this, a, this job to do at the Met on the dress, she didn't say, go put the gold dress on the mannequin. She'd stand up and recreate the person who wore the dress. From reading the knowledge, she would say, there is Cleopatra. She's a queen, but she's a teenager. She's in Alexandria, or walking those terraces, and those terraces are hot, and she's fretful, and she's nervous, and she's followed by white peacocks. And she's the most beautiful young teenager in Alexandria, and she's surrounded by old people, all these old people. And she's fretting, and it's hot, and she's in the sun, and she's followed by white peacocks. Now, get cracking. Go work. Go do your job. And you have to sit there and make all that narrative sense of why you're going to make that dress work. And you, you just solve the problem. And this is what I learned about clothing. <laughs> Mr. Fanchild taught me how to, Vreeland taught me how to see clothes and from inside out in the luxury. And Mr. Fanchild taught me how to analyze them and to write about them in a critical way. And to these two people, I owe my career. And I always give it up to Mr. John Fairchild and Deanna Breland. And so it sounds like you're saying just be more of you. I just have to be me and I'm fine. Because when I'm me and I'm authentically me, it works. And that's always happened. It works. It works with my friendships. And when I'm me, no matter the flaws or the highs and the lows, you got to cope with me. You got to be patient. When I first met you, I treated you like... Uh, I dismissed you when I got off that plane in St. Louis. I said, who are you? Get out of my way. Why? Why? I don't even know. Why? Wow. And then slowly we became friends. We got on that private plane and then you were wearing a skirt. You asked me, should I wear this skirt? Remember? And I just dismissed you. Then you invited me to show. And then I realized that you were who you were. Because sometimes I am not the easiest person to get along with. But people have, who have patience know that I'm worth, worth it. It's worthwhile. And these people, and these are people of greatness. Anne Bass, Deanna Vreeland, Saul Schlumberger, an art patron. She was so supportive of me. And when I went with to her with John Galliano for lunch, and we decided 
that I knew that she had this empty, fabulous mansion in Paris because I'd been there for so many parties. But John had never seen it. And I said, John, we have looked up and down all over Paris. We cannot find the right place to have the show of 17 looks on $50,000 in March of 1994. And I went in February and I said, oh, let's take the style to lunch. We can get style. So we're going to ask her for the house. He had not even seen her. I said, Sal, we are here to ask you for something. This is what this lunch is about. There's no such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> we would like to have your a house to have the John Galliano show. Now, be before I did that, I had sent John Galliano over to her house, to her new apartment, to custom make for her a kilt, an evening kilt, out of antique oriental silks that she had, because he'd had a show, and I said, you've got to have something with John Galliano. And John Galliano went and measured her and made her this beautiful kilt, evening kilt, out of his oriental, some oriental something, beautiful, beautiful fabric. I, John Galliano came to New York, and he made a dress for Ann Bass in her library on Fifth Avenue, and filled with Picasso, was on the fireplace, over the fireplace, and Rodin sculptures, the ballerinas and everything. So I said, Sal, we need your part, your house, for a fashion show we want to do. And she's very, she's a woman of very few words. She said, mm, yes, why not? The only thing I think I'll have to have, I said, oh, I did say, and of course the show will be go on. And like you cast uh, this person, the man whose name I forget, you have to introduce me to it. And then I said, of course, you will be seated in the grand salon in the center on the sofa. And you will be seated there, propped up by the Rothschilds and the, the Brandolini Dadas. And the show will furl and furl through the rooms, through the awful lot of rooms. And then her eyes left. She said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, then I'll have to go get a little facelift. I'll just have a little facelift before the show. <laughs> That's all she wanted to do. And then she said, fine. We didn't pay her. We were in that house, and that became a legendary show. You can see it on YouTube. <laughs> Look at it on YouTube, people. <laughs> Linda Evangelista, Naomi Campbell, Christy Trellington all did it for free. Manolo Blahnik made the shoes for free. Uh, Amanda Hollick styled it with all the great jewels and diamonds from the great jewelers of Paris, Cartier, Winston, Bucciolati, Boivin, Belperon, you name it. They had 17 guards on the third floor of Madame Schlumberger's house, and the only person who go on that floor was Amanda and picked the diamonds to put on the clothes. I mean, this is what John was genius. He used real diamonds, Cartier diamonds. Nadia Araman, oh, it was just a show. One of the greatest moments of my life. I had two great moments when I got to Paris in 78 and the March show of 1994 with John Galliano, the rebooting of his career. What do you feel is missing in fashion? Like, how do you feel that the fashion industry can advance and be not only uh, more inclusive, but actually be at the vanguard of this moment that we're in. I have this phrase that there's no justice on the runway. I personally feel that fashion is too tied to the demands of capital for any oh, real totally, change. Totally, totally. Wait, hold on. It's easy to answer that. It must go back to the individual, individual imagination, be it black or white, individuality. This is where fashion must return. In this global pandemic, we don't know what's going to happen. There was no couture show recently in Paris. 
people are going to go digital and there's going to have to be imaginative. It must go back to the individual, the oneness of the human spirit, the oneness of you taking Viola Davis and creating that jazz cover. A jazz is the highest compliments. John Coltrane, the this month. Jazz, it's, we are jazz. Dr. Cornell West said we are a jazz culture. We are blues culture. Oneness. Stephen Barrows, just give the individual that is unique the moment to shine. And we have to go back. I'll give you another example. Eisley Elia, one of the greatest designers ever. Eisley Elia started his career. And I have, I was there. It was in my documentary. I was young and Eisley Elia was hanging up a coat in the documentary. It opens with one of his shows in his tiny apartment on Rue Belshaz. He had three tiny rooms with his lover, Christophe. And Bettina Graziani, this famous model who married the Ali Khan, did she marry him? Was she the girlfriend? I don't remember. She said to me, she was a force in Paris, society and fashion. She came up to me and we weren't special friends. I had dinner in her house once. She says, you must come with me to Alaya. I said, who? <laughs> Alaya, you know he's going to be big. I said, what? And because I respected her, I did went to the Alaya show. If I had not listened to Bettina, who had already been modeling for Jacques Faust. She was a star model of Jacques Faust in 1952, the star model of Givenchy in 1952. She had the biggest affair with the Ali Khan. Her apartment had been given to her by Ali Khan. I had dinner there with Maria and the Rothschild in the kitchen. Because in those days, it was chic for the Rothschilds to receive in the kitchen. Dinner, that's how you, 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 you were slumming, by having your dinner in the kitchen, not your dining room. Mm. Oh, like a piece of chicken, a roast chicken or something. I said, okay, I'll go with you to the Rue Belshaz. I didn't know what I was going to see. I get into the Rue Belshaz. That's just Beth Ann Hardison. It's in the dark. I was like, <laughs> and, you know, I, I, my armor is, so I have to just put my shoulders up and I'm here at a place I don't know. This tiny apartment. I'm supposed to be looking at the clothes and Bettina is there and I'm he's great. He's going to be famous. She, as an individuality, the show came out and I was blown away. I was speechless. This was a speechless moment. He was small. He became big. He died big. Oh, my God. He was a master of cut. Oh, my. He was a brilliant man. He also was self-taught. He could talk to you have a big dog running around in the atelier at two in the morning, take a phone call from a little evangelista and still grade his patterns and pin crocodiles onto the black coat that became a masterpiece. The man was unique. He came from Tunisia. He started at Dior. He was fired from Dior and he made coats for Greta Garbo, navy blue cashmere coats for Greta Garbo and her girlfriend to see the Rothschild. Greta Garbo had a great girlfriend named Cecilia Rothschild. They went to Alaya, not for evening gowns, but for cashmere coats and pants. Before Alaya died, he was able to buy that navy blue cashmere coat at an auction. He was, it was just astounding. And this was a small, this, the rooms were so small. The, the, the cabine was the kitchen. And they swan to the bedroom and they went on little chairs in the living room. 
and there was my pesa in a double fur mink cardigan coat. It, she took the coat off, and underneath the coat was a sleeveless vest in mink. It looks like the lightest thing in the world. And this is Isaac Eliab. Isaac Eliab, a genius. And you must, individuality. Deanna really was an individual. The individuality, the uniqueness of oneness. Because the oneness will bring in something that the whole body does not have. And you see that, and Radhika saw that in you. And I, I, just, I just think it's going to depend on oneness and uniqueness and the imagination of black or the white imagination or the Asian imagination. You know, there's greatness in all cultures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Ray Kaukuba is an extraordinary designer. And look how far she went on clothes with holes in them back in the 80s when she started showing in Paris. The clothes, clothes looked like Swiss cheese, black coats with Swiss cheese. Well, I, I sort of embraced it, but you know something? Anna went to never really got the Comic Garcon look. But she finally embraced it when they had the show. Mr. Bolton took her to the show. It was a beautiful she, show. And yeah. And Mark Jacobs, oneness, genius. The last show he had it choreographed by Carol Armitage. And she choreographed a brilliant show in less than a week. 44 dancers, transgendered, dressed. Black men in high heels and trench coats, collar cloths, dressed in ball gowns. This was a show before the pandemic, and it was one of the last shows of Fashion Week in February, and it was brilliant. It signaled maybe a farewell to the great show, and it was the beginning of another moment in time in fashion. So fashion must create and embrace the oneness of the imagination, particularly the Black imagination. And speaking of the black imagination, and I, I don't want to take too much of your time, and I really appreciate this conversation. It's mm -hmm. amazing. Um, but what do you imagine for the future? What does the future look like for you? I don't even really imagine it. I live day by day. I, I don't really imagine what the world is going to be like once we get over this pandemic. We get over it in 2020 or 2021. Will there be vaccine be made? But I know that the world of fashion is going to be different. I think that the digital platform is going to make a big difference. I think that visionaries will make a big difference. Fashion will be seen differently. There will be a focus on fashion that will be more personal, the way it used to be, that when fashion was small. When I came up in the 70s, fashion was a very insulated world, and there were few great moments, but they were always great. This is when Sonia Ricciel became great. She started knitting clothes when she was pregnant, and then she used to have her shows in her small boutique. People used to be squeezed like sardines into small spaces to see fashion. Thus, the Isaac Elias show in Rubel Shots. Fashion must turn on its head and become something more intimate. I don't know if it's a designer, like uh, this Congolese uh, native, 27 years old. I think she's got a show called Pink, uh, clothes called Pink Label on Digital. She lives in Maryland, and she has a digital model called Imani, and she creates beautiful clothes on the digital platform. She's 27 and she sells dresses. She has collections on the digital and she's 27 years old and probably self-taught and that's amazing. Her name is Mumvabemba, Movember or something. But I saw this um, written about in the New York Times by Teddy Tinson, who was a former assistant of mine. And I thought this is revealing because this is the future because she has a platform, she created her own platform on digital, you know? People are going to be more intimate through this technology of 
uh, Zoom and talking. I mean, these talks are so important. I did a Zoom talk uh, two weeks ago. We had 3,300 people. I spoke for two hours. Uh, I had this conversation with Abba. I did one with my best friend Alexis on Tuesday for the links. You know, the society group, <laughs> the bougie grand society group, Black women. 600 people, and uh, I'm sure it sold a lot of books, and I was so proud to have this, this, this conversations and take time. And they're not quick. These conversations are intimate. We've been speaking for one hour and 35 minutes. We did not have a 20-minute chat. You know how that becomes when they had those platforms. So it's all very, very important. As I wrote in my book, when Naomi took me to Lagos, Nigeria last year, and I went to Easter Sunday, it was just a very extraordinary moment. And that became a very powerful moment for me as my first trip to that part of Africa. But um, each individual has something, if they have the imagination, that will impact the world of culture and style and will become part of history. And I'm so proud of you because you have made history with this extraordinary vanity cover. And I hope you will continue to do more. And um, I want you to call Tyler Mitchell and give me his email. So I want to have a conversation with you and Tyler Mitchell in, Mitchell in September, just the two of you, uh, about your extraordinary pioneering roles as Black men who have paved a new way for Black people in general. Don't you think that people know that you are a Black man from the New York Times that photographed the cover of a Condé Nast magazine? You see, Condé Nast was... It was steeped in unconscious white overseers. White overseers for decades oversaw the branding of Condé Nast magazines. And they imposed, they didn't articulate, they never spoke about, well, we don't have enough black people. But they didn't put black people in. And it, when did Beverly Johnson get on the cover of Vogue in 1974? In August. She was put on the cover in August because that was not a big selling month. August and I think January are the least selling month for the magazine. But then Anna went to put Naomi Campbell on one September for this big fashion, the, come, the back to school issue, as it was called, the September book. Um, these discussions will help people to realize that we... The Black imagination is a very powerful thing. Mm -hmm. We are powerful in literature. James Baldwin, Toni Morrison got the Nobel Peace Prize for literature. Do you realize how important that was and is? Do you realize how important Eddie S. Cloud Jr. is? He's on the bestseller list for the last two weeks where his book began again on James Baldwin. Do you realize how important Alvin Ailey was, the American dance theater, Judith Jamison? She also goes to Episcopal Baptist Church. Do you realize Lena Horne? Do you realize Diane Carroll used to sing in the school, in the junior choir downstairs at Episcopal Baptist Church? Diane Carroll. She then became the first black woman, Julia the nurse, the big show. These are pioneer moments, and it's the black imagination or black beauty. Let's just say black beauty or Uniqueness, it's uniqueness. And I was a unique thing that came out of Durham, North Carolina. And I, I just, I think I invented myself through my body of knowledge and research and my curatorial 
ability to maintain things that impressed me, whatever I was reading. Uh, I don't know. This, it's, it's just, I have a different way of seeing things. And I learned to see things early on and to make my own world. As I said, the red birds inspire me. Geraniums inspire me. White sheets inspire me. If I could make a scent that smells like white sheets drying in the open air, it would be extraordinary scent. I would not know how to do that, but I think I would make a fortune if I would make a, a scent called white sheets drying in the air. These are the things that are important and people share this experience and then you can impact or impart that moment to other people's lives. It's a very important thing. I don't know how I see the world as it is after the pandemic. I don't know because we don't know. I hope that I will be in the world. I'm doing everything I do to take care of not getting sick because this is a very scary disease. And by the way, when you come, you have to wear a mask. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. I have a mask. And, and what would you like your legacy to be? My legacy would be, must be, and it will be, and I know that it will be, that once you open the door, you found a person whose life mattered to many people in the world, who left a legacy of kindness, human kindness, great, unique imagination, curator of knowledge of many, many dioramas or many, many cultures, and that he contributed to the world. He left a contribution of oneness, oneness that mattered. That's what I would love my legacy to be. Amazing. Um, well, I want to take a moment, Andre, and acknowledge you and thank you. I always, I always do because well, I want you. Of course, you know this, but you know your your work, your strength, your tenacity um, to move and carve out your own lane in a mm -hmm. sea of 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 of. Of, of whiteness, really, <laughs> you know, to, to carve it out. White space. White space, white to, to, white to, to, space. To, to take up space, really, um, and to make room for myself, for Edward, for, for Tyler, for um, Shiona, for, for, for Kirby, for Wales Bonner. And to encourage and embrace you. You yeah. must be embraced. The important thing is you must be embraced and acknowledged. That's, and this is extraordinary. And when St. Louis Fashion Fund had you as a special consultant, it is all very important. You must realize that you can do many, many things in your life and it doesn't have to be necessarily the same thing, but it will matter. And I know how much they love you in St. Louis. And I think your Jesuit education helped to develop who you are, as I'm sure it did. And so did my education. I had to depend upon myself and books uh, my grandmother and I did not have share the same thing as I, in literature. The only thing my grandmother ever shared with me that was part of literature was Truman Capote. Every year we at Thanksgiving, we would watch. We wouldn't read a Thanksgiving memory, but it was made into a CBS special, and they would show it on Thanksgiving. And Geraldine Page would play his Aunt Souk, and she would look at that with me. But... You know, I was allowed to be free in her house as long as I did my chores, make up my bed, wax the floors with Johnson's paste wax, scrub the front porch, take cut the wood and bring it up to 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 make the fires, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so therefore, you 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 have to be embraced. Um, 
I could have gone to Aliyah and said, oh, but I realized that in Aliyah, there was something that was unique about the way this man from Tunisia was cutting clothes, the way he put the clothes together. They were different from Saint Laurent or Karl Lagerfeld and Chloe. They were different from Coco Chanel. And what an impact he made. Aliyah, I mean, oh, women clamor to have an Aliyah piece in their wardrobes. And it is art. It is close to art, it's akin to art. And he looked at fashion as architecture. He thought of it as art. And the way he worked, the way his hands touched, he had a piece of crocodile, baby crocodile. He implanted the skin in the back of a black coat. And the tail of the crocodile became like a tail coat. It's in an exhibit called Aliyah and Adrian. This man must be acknowledged, as you must be acknowledged, as Tyler must be acknowledged. And um, Edward Ennefell must be acknowledged as the first black man at a condonance, the helm of British, British Vogue. Pat McGrath. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, what I don't want to necessarily say is, is surprising, but I mean, you did mention that when we first met, you were quite, quite, quite brackish. Um, oh, you'll be very polite, honey. I was a bitch. <laughs> I was a cranky, cranky, nasty monster. Well, first of all, I, I, I must say, well, there's no excuse. I was on that nasty old plane coming down from New York to St. Louis, and I was by myself. And then you met me, and then there we was this thin, frail, slight thing. And I don't know. I said, what? What are I don't know. What was I expecting? I don't know what I was expecting, but I was. And the one thing is you do not want to see me when I'm in a bad mood, cranky from an airplane. But then I embraced you. We got on that plane. We went back to that private plane. And then we were sitting all cramped up in that plane with Alexis and Jonathan and Alexandra. And Tamron. And Tamron Hall. Jonathan loves your, your cover, by the way. He just sent me an email. He loves it. He thought it was exquisite oh, for his words. Thank you. And, and Jonathan is a personal quality. You, and you have to surround yourself with people who appreciate you and appreciate the world. I have always been lucky to surround myself with perhaps the right people because I've been blessed to have people embrace me in their world that I thought I'd never even be getting a door. Mm -hmm. I mean, Sal Schlumberger, when I was in Women's Wear Daily, when I went to Women's Wear Daily in 78, black people were not invited from Women's Wear or reporters to society luncheons and dinners. You would not see a a person of anybody, black or white, going into Madame Schlumberger's Rue Ferru residence for lunch. And one, one time, Andy came to, to Paris, Andy and Fred, and Sal gave a lunch, and she invited me. And I got up the stairs at the Grand Staircase on the second floor, and I see I'm at lunch with Baroness Marie Helene de Rothschild. And I, you, this, this just didn't happen. I mean, I said, what? And she invited me. And she was a breakout because she was one of the first society ladies to embrace me and endorse me by having me at that lunch, an intimate lunch with Baroness Marie Helena Rothschild. Paris opened its doors to me. And as Betty Catru said, I became the king of Paris in 78 because I was skinny and young and very confident because I was smart and I knew, I knew where I was, who I had to meet, I did my homework. And I had Carl Lagerfeld watching my back. I always had Carl Lagerfeld in the, he was the wind in my sail. 
And we were friends for 30 years because we spoke the same language. We had the same passions, knowledge. And this is what it was all about. And Andy adored me. Andy was wonderful. I loved Andy Warhol. He had some nasty habits though, but I just dismissed him. But he was wonderful. He would say to me, Oh, Andre, you can be a fashion designer. I said, I don't want to be a fashion designer. Oh, just think of all the money. I said, oh, Andy, I don't want to be the fashion designer. There's too much pressure. I really said that to him several times. Oh, come on. Look at all the famous people in fashion. Look how much money they make. I said, Andy, I don't want to be a fashion designer. And then the interview office was in an in a adjacent part of the floor. He had a whole, the interview, the Warhol factory was one whole floor, 860 Broadway on the third floor. He'd paint in the back. He'd come around to the interview office. He'd get bored. He'd walk around, you know, walk around chatting up people. One afternoon he came. He said, oh, Andre. <clears throat> I was sitting there typing. I was supposed to be taking messages from Fran Leibowitz, which I did. I was very intimidated by Fran Leibowitz. We are now good friends. And uh, she always said, I don't believe your name is Andre. You made it up. I said, yes, it is. I said, you want to see my birth certificate? This is the way people, white people approach you. I said, what do you mean? My name is Andre. I didn't make this up. My, my mother named me Andre. It's on my birth certificate. <clears throat> so Andy said, oh, Andre, why don't you come in the back of the studio and let me photograph your penis? And I'm doing penis paintings, and I'll give you one. And it's, it'll be worth $45,000. I said, oh, no, thank you. No, thank you. I just said, no, thank you. And, I kept, and as he said that, it, I was speaking to myself in my mind, my other part of my brain was saying, can you imagine my grandma was still alive? If my grandma suddenly read in the newspaper, Andre is having his penis painted by Andy Warhol. I said, no, thank you. It was just, I, it was unheard of. I mean, I was so naive, but I just quietly said, no, thank you. And then he was back there with Victor Hugo, they were pissing on canvases and he was painting it and called it oxidation paintings. But this is Andy and Andy was naive and Andy was wonderful. He was a smart man. And he sort of would do naughty things like, I once went to the movies with Aliyah and Andy. One afternoon, we went to a matinee because Aliyah was in town. And I said, oh, Andy, let's go to the movies with Aliyah. So we went up to town to Lexington Avenue, and we went to the movie around 4.30. I forget the movie. And um, there's Aliyah sandwiched between Andy and myself. And the movie starts, and the lights go out. And, you know, Andy was very pale, very pale person, white man. And all of a sudden, Andy's serpentine veined white hands was slowly slithering across Aliyah's lap onto my lap, towards my crotch. <laughs> and when, it, when I felt this hand, I looked down and screeched, I was screeching, and Aliyah was broke out laughing. And to the, to the day, Aliyah and I always had that great moment with Andy. And he just, he broke the, he broke the French detention because he just burst out laughing. And Andy, of course, just stopped him. Well, I used to go to dinner with Andy, and he would just always be inching his hand towards my crotch. But I just, I was not offended by it. I just, I think he was very curious. And also, he was very, he had boyfriends. Oh, he did have boyfriends. Oh, he did have living boyfriends. But he was very curious about me. And I don't know if it was a sexual thing, but he was just very innocently done. I mean, he never tried to, like, really grope. He was never groping me. He, he, I would just swat it off his hand. That happened frequently, but it was, I looked at it. People probably said it was like a Me Too thing, but it wasn't. <laughs> but this is part of who I was. And who, you know, I came to New York and I had to deal with it. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Okay, 
Andre, where can people connect with you and where will they be able to locate your book, The Chiffon Trenches? Well, one of the places that they can buy the book is, is online mm-hmm. or they can go to Bookmark, Mark Jacobs' store at Bleecker Street. They have scores of books. Mark Jacobs is a great source to go. They, they have tons of my books. He was very supportive of the book. You know, he went on Instagram and photographed himself in the Mercer Hotel reading the book in bed with gold, easel, and on platform sandals, <laughs> high heel sandals, and a perfect pedicure. So I would go to Bookmark or you can go to Amazon.com. It's online. I would recommend that people could buy the audio. I read the audio. It's on audible.com. And people have told me they bought the book and the audio and they love reading the book and listening to me read the book. And I, that was a great experience. I read that book. It's nine hours of audio, listening to it in audio. It took me four days to read the book. So I'm very proud of that. Very proud of that. Very proud. And, and oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. I want to thank you for this uniqueness and this valued time to speak to you. I really appreciate it on a Friday on the 17th of January, of July. Time doesn't matter. This will become timeless. And I really uh, honor you. And I'm so proud. And I was so proud when you did that, cast that show. And But I was more proud when I went to your beautiful, small, oh, intimate jewel of an exhibit on Lana Turner. And there was someone else in that exhibit, too. There was a man. It wasn't uh, a man. Yeah, it was like a joint exhibit between myself and another artist. And the curator liked the, okay. liked the conversation between our two bodies of work. But anyway, I remember Lana Turner, and I remember the jewel hat, and I remember the big hat, and it was just beautiful, just exquisite. And I know you will do great work, and I'm so proud of you, and I'm so proud of me. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm proud of I'm proud of you as well. And Andre, like I I am so thankful one for our relationship, our growing relationship, but then also like how you really behind the scenes are always champion champion championing the black imagination absolutely always without the bullhorn without the foghorn yeah people always said to me well what did you do for diversity at vote i said i had a monthly column go back and research that monthly column and see how subtle the nuances were yeah i once had a cake made a marzipan cake at saint ambrose and i would give them out for christmas these were very extravagant christmas cakes they sent the chef over from Italy, from Milan, St. Ambrose, before Thanksgiving, and he sat there all the season and make these cakes. Towards Christmas, you go in there, and there'll be 300, 400 boxes of these marzipan cakes. I had the marzipan cake red, and I went in, and I took a portrait of Obama, and I said, I want Mr. Obama put on the cake, and the word Obama, and the cake was photographed in my column because I was celebrating Barack Obama as the first black American, African-American as president. And I would give that cake to Lee Radzi Will, Katie Marin, Annette Larenta, so and so and so on. Or I have red bird cardinals on mint green. I said, I want red cardinals on a branch and mint green as the main ground for the cake. I went to Annette Larenta's house for Thanksgiving when just Oscar and myself and Annette were having Thanksgiving um, dinner one, one Thanksgiving. It was raining. I drove up in my little truck and I had on my Chanel jacket, custom-made leather, gold chains, fabulous. And I bought Annette this cake and she opened the cake. She could not believe it. She could not believe this cake. And she, t- she says, we are not cutting this cake. We are not. It's so beautiful. 
And she said, this cake is so beautiful. What an extraordinary gesture. So she said to her manservant, her, her major, her major hotel, take the cake and find a place for it in the living room and put it on one of the sideboards. So we went to the Thanksgiving dinner and she just kept walking around with the cake in her hands. And I took a cake to lead at Christmas. And she said, oh, I have not received such things like this from my husband's. My husband's were not even this imaginative to give me gifts like this. The thought of that cake was a gesture. It somehow went back into centuries of hospitality and grace. Mm-hmm. Black folk taking cake dishes to homes. It's just part of the culture. And I, I just, I am very lucky that I have the ability to associate things that become unique. And I love that moment. And that was, I photographed that cake and it's one of my favorite columns in Vogue. I had the, at the top and I had the picture of the cake and et cetera. And I looked at it the other day and I thought how amazing. And this man who did my master's thesis on me in Quran, and he said he, he researched over 600 articles that I'd written in Vogue over the years from 1988. And I've done many things, many things, many things. Andre, you are, you are an institution. You are a walking institution of black imagination. So thank you so much, so much for spending What a great pleasure. Thank you, Dario. Thank you so much. Be blessed. Have a great weekend. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. Be well. Thank you so much for this great opportunity. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Leaving. Thank you all so much for listening to part two of this conversation with the indefatigable Andre Leon Talley. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends. Shout us out over on Instagram at Black Imagination Podcast and let us know what part of the conversation impacted you the most. Be sure to subscribe wherever you receive your podcasts, rate and review us on iTunes. And if you'd like to support this work, be sure to click the support link in the show notes. Tony Morrison says that this is precisely the time when artists go to work. There is no time for despair, no place for self-pity, no need for silence, no room for fear. We speak, we write, we do language. That is how civilizations heal. And remember, black imagination is liberation. Stay curious and keep dreaming.